from the rugged desert outside Yuma, Arizona. This is Outpost Outspoken. Outpost Outspoken is the official podcast of U.S. Army Yuma Proving Ground, which conducts natural environment testing of military equipment in Arizona, Alaska, and the tropics. Surveying is about collecting data and making maps about the Earth's surface. Joining me today is geodetic technician Darren Meeks, who is going to share with us how that relates to the work being done here at YPG. What exactly is a geodetic technician and what does what do you do? Out here at YPG, a geodetic technician, we go out and everything that's firing here at YPG, it has to be set up. So if they're firing a gun at a particular angle, 90 degrees, we're the ones that go out and put the center traverse hub in, and then we put the lines of fire hub in, and then when they move the vehicle in, then the BG will come along and make sure that they're in line with that. And if they fire that weapon, obviously, and it lands somewhere and they want the impacts recorded, then we'll go out there with our GPS and survey those spots so that they can see, hey, this is where the rounds hit. So essentially you set up the shall we say, define the areas in which the gun will fire? Correct. Can you tell me what's the difference between a normal survey and a geodetic survey? The terminology, like when I started here like 18 years ago, we were considered surveyors because we had the theodolites. So based off where I'm at on the ground, I'll calculate the numbers and say, this is the number to that. So if I point at it and set my instrument, then when I point at the other ones, I can confirm that I'm where I'm at and the angles meet. So when I start shooting in a particular point to survey, like a center of traverse, then I know this is where that's at and everything, the math is jumping to each point. So when I'm over the center of traverse, I'll do the same thing. I'll survey, orientate myself, put in the line of fire, the bomb proofs, the blast shields for safety, which has a particular degree that they have to be on so that when they set the blast shields up, they're in the best place to be in case something happens bad. So it's, it's safe to say that uh, the technology incorporated within surveying has advanced quite a bit? Yes. From when you first started? From when I first started setting up the, the theodolites, even the old 16, which had no computers in them to like now the uh, theodolites are a regular a computer that you can do multi-stuff to depending on what what coordinates you have that you're shooting in a particular thing or to jump it to the gps the global positioning system we can go out turn it on and survey basically anything as long as we have the satellite coverage if not then we got to go back down to the electronic theodolite and shoot stuff in so the GPS has made it so much simpler now. You can actually know where you're going at what spot you need to be and what sites you need to find. Correct. Like, I mean, we have handheld GPSs that can take us to the sites, but after being here 18 years, I kind of know where stuff's at or just to look on a map. But once we get there, like for the GPS, if we're putting something in, they want to... Uh, good accuracy of two centimeters, so that's what we can provide no matter what the blast ratio for that particular weapon or artillery or stuff going off. So it's like when I started, it was a three-man crew, and now you're a one-man crew. 
So basically, instead of having somebody on the theodolite, someone pounding a stake, I can put all the stakes in or go out and put paint marks where the stakes are, go back out, put the stakes in, everything lines up, bless it with the geodetic Jedi gods. It's like, we're good. Turn it into my shop, and then they'll, of course, QC it to make sure all the math is correct. And that's, that's a key point that you just touched on and something that I'm thankful for, and you may be as well. Sounds like a lot less math. Yes, because <laughs> when I first got out here, I had a T95 calculator where you had to punch in all the numbers wherever you were going and calculate. And now, I mean, we still have Excel spreadsheets that we can put the coordinates in that do it on the spot. So it made us a little more efficient than sitting there and punching, you know, a, uh, an eight-digit coordinate in, the X and the Ys, and make sure you didn't finger mess it up because if you did, then your angle's off, and then if you carry that error over, nope. So this makes it a lot easier and more efficient for us. So you'd mentioned earlier that uh, most of the GPS had already been set up by the time you started. Have you had to go out to remote places and set any of that up, or was it pretty much all of the system complete by then? Mm, when I got here, they were, we were still building it, because when I initially got here, the GPS was just a tripod with a head that we put over a known point. And that known point was broadcast into the satellites. And then we'd have our rover, which had a head on it, and it would talk to the ground control that we had and the satellites. So when we took a point, all that calculation, that math went quickly, and then we'd get it within a second, bam, okay, we got it. But going to like remote points or stuff that's been established over the years that's been out, there's there's state boundary lines that are out here at YPG and you could be walking looking for, you know, an impact with a demo and it's like, oh, look, and I'm like, what's that? And I was like, well, it was put here in 1929. <laughs> so it's like, you know, like a, like a museum piece that somebody was here and they didn't have a GPS. And back in the olden days, they were pulling tape for many, many, many miles to get this here. So fast forward to now, if we're out in a spot and there's no control on the ground, we can just put a T-bar in, or if it's something that's gonna be there longer, our geodetic shop will have a, a monument made with a little dink in the top of it. The year you're putting it in, go out there with some cement and a rebar, put it in, because it's gonna be there for a long time. And um, it just, I don't wanna say it made our job easier, because you're still down range when it's you know 30 degrees or 120 doing it, it just made it to where we get out there, put it up, do it, get it right. We have all the data. They can QC it, bless it, and everything's a good go from there. How vital is it to have these geodetic surveys done at, say, specifically gun, the sites of gun tests? Viable? I mean, you can't. Vital. Vital. It's yeah. a must. You can't fire a gun unless geodetics goes out there and sets the gun up. They can't just pull something up and somebody take a compass and say, we're gonna fire that way. Because there's that, that watch of us doing it and then the overwatch of our, uh, like my leadership, making sure that my math is correct, making sure my orientations are correct. And then everything is stored now digitally before it was stored in the old uh, survey books. So there was a, a carbon copy of what the survey did and turned in and then the individual kept that copy. So if somebody said, this happened on this date, this was your survey, and I can mathematically prove that I went from this point to this point. 
I orientated and I shot these angles in. These were the distance. So, and then somebody blessed off on that with their initial saying, he's correct. Because if it wasn't, then you wouldn't go back out there and, and make sure somebody else did. To do it, to make sure that this is absolute, this is what they want, this is correct. So it's like for, for geodetics, it, you can't go measure to something, you know, and just think that, oh, well, right. Yeah, you could have a tool or measure. Yeah, it's, it's eight inches. Okay, but what's the coordinates? Just laying it down if you wanted a particular thing you know, 10 meters from the blast shield. What's the coordinate that you took from that tape? Unless you have an instrument to record it, a theodolite or a GPS, you're just saying that you, you saw it. We're saying it and then we're making it a record that I've seen records back from one of my old bosses here, Randy Chavez, back when he, 1970, you know, and it was just like, wow. But I mean, coming out here, like for, for geodetics coming from recruiting, it was just like, wow, this is this is new. But then every year, just learning something more and more about the importance of the job was like, okay, this is a plus. And I mean, I love coming out here because it's like something new every day. So you've seen quite a bit of YPG over the years. Yes, lots of YPG up to the to the northeast corner. Um, stuff that like, wow, that I wonder if Patton was driving here back in you know, World War II and stuff, and then on the Cibola side, just different stuff that it's, you know, like, hey, you gotta come in at five and go out to Ramsdale Ranch and watching the sun come up, and it's just like, wow, this is, this is great. Sun comes up, we do our job, go to the next position, so it's like, I mean, I've, I've spent majority of my time down range in the last 18 years. You got a favorite spot? A favorite spot? Part of the range? Mm, like. Mountain wise to the east side of uh, by Middle Mountain and stuff, the, the, the nature out there is it's just like I mean, you could see where tanks and stuff have driven over. But when the sun comes up or just being out there, it's just it's real peaceful, you don't hear nothing, it's quiet. So, or like by Iron Mountain, Hog Valley, and stuff, there it's just driving down when you're going for me, you know, I'm looking and it's like you see something new every day, and it's just like. This is cool, and the same on the Cibola side, just drive. I mean, I, to me, it's like each time I get whatever my mission is on the schedule, Danny, he's like, okay, hey, go do this, go do that. And it's like, all right, boom. And you're going out there, you're just like looking. You see other geodetics or people doing what they're doing, and then you get where you're going. And it's just happy. Or being on a particular uh, mission or a test where it's going three or four months and all the other people that have the little pieces of the puzzle from YPG to put together to where they can do what they do in their, their job. Of course, me doing what I can do in my job to make everything happen. So it's just, I mean, every day I, I like it. I love it. It's like, you know, like how many more years you got? I'm like, I'm just going to keep going. It's fun, <laughs> you know, but, you know, at the same time being, you know, your numbers are tight, your numbers are golden and stuff. Just when we turn them in, it's like, hey, good job, good job. So that's a plus. So prior, before coming to YPG, you were a recruiter for the um, National Guard? Both. I, I spent Army. 13 years recruiting. Six of it was in the Army. And then the Army wanted me to go to Bangor, Maine. And I was like, so I got out of the Army. I joined the Army National Guard. And they left me right in Yuma. And I just picked up where I left off, down at the uh, armory there on uh, the readiness center on uh, Airby. And 
basically just kept recruiting. The only thing is people would go to basic and AIT and then come back either one week in a month, two weeks a year, or if they got deployed, which that, that was happening now. And then when I retired, it was like, what are you, you going to do? I was like, I'm going to go out to YPG and we're, what are you going to do? And I was just like, I don't know. I'm not going to recruit. And I got out here and I started YPG as a data collector. And I did that for six months and a job opening up for geodetics. And I was like, that sounds interesting. Put in for it. Got selected, and they, it's, it's OJT training, and, you know, like for the last 18 years, even now, I'm still learning stuff that it's, 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 it's old stuff, but we didn't do it, so it's now we're going to start doing this. So they teach me this way. We do it till we're perfected at it, and then just keep going. Yes. Basically, the question I was going to answer, ask you, is how you go from being a recruiter for the military to a geodesics technician right one of the one as a recruiter we used to give the ASVAB test and then we'd give a, a, a career choice test where you'd answer questions on what you like to do and then we take the ASVAB test it's what you have the aptitude to do and one time being I was instructing the students how to do that I took it and one of the jobs on it was surveying and I was just like wow survey didn't think nothing of it until I'm here at YPG <laughs> surveying and I'm like wow that's like kind of predictive there, but it was like, I like it because you, you just, when I go out to survey and I'm setting the instrument up, it's just a flow of concentration because somebody's going to check your work and somebody's life could depend on you doing it right. Well, that's going to bring our interview to a close. Darren, the information you shared with us was very informative. Thank you for taking the time to be here with us. Welcome to Outpost Outspoken. I'm your host for this segment, Anna Henderson. The Military Freefall School is one of the largest advanced training programs in the John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School. While the Warfare Center is based in North Carolina, the Freefall Center is here on the grounds of YPG. Joining us today is the Sergeant Major of the Freefall School, Matt Kruger. Welcome. Afternoon. Now let's start with the mission of the Military Freefall School. The mission of the Military Freefall School is to create basic Military Freefall School jumpers that span through the Army, um, Navy, EOD. We have parachute riggers. Also, we create jumpers for Army Special Operations Command. The Air Force is a big uh, client of ours also with their pipeline, with their special ops, with the uh, combat control techs, the pararescue, their SEER guys, and then we do the, um, the parachute riggers from the Army. So the service members that go through this school are the toughest of the tough. Yes, most of them. We also uh, create the military freefall jump masters who are in charge of, you know, plotting where the release point is for the jumpers, um, doing the inspections before they, uh, they rig up with equipment, their parachute and all that stuff. And then we also have our instructor course, which we run internal, where we create the military freefall instructor that we refer to as an MFFI. The school started back in the 70s, and since then we have a total of 902 military freefall instructors that have been created over the years. So there's not a lot since the, uh, the creation of the school. That school is it's around 11 weeks long, and then once you get out of there, you're not finished. You have to go down to the basic course, and you have to jump um, students with what's called a shadow master a more experienced instructor for at least three to four classes before you're evaled out 
to where you're allowed to jump students on your own. You have the four programs of instructions, and they, they go from basic all the way to someone as advanced as an instructor? Yes. And we also have the Marines out here, recon Marines that run our tandem course. Um, well, it's their tandem course. They usually go around the, uh, the U.S. teaching these courses, and they run two here a year, and that's anywhere from strapping um, another human to you, jumping out of the airplane, or a 500-pound barrel tethered to you, pushing it out. So that, that's a really intense course. Tell me about the intensity of these courses. Like, how many jumps are they conducting during the time of the course? You know, how many hours of the course, the length of them? Talk to me about that. So with the basic course, it's four weeks long. First week is uh, the ground uh, ground phase, which where students, they, uh, they learn how to pack their own parachute. We get them in the wind tunnel to learn how to fly their body so they're comfortable in the air. We also take them to the pool over at the MWR to teach them how to properly exit out of the ramp of an airplane. Because you really, you, you can't do that in the wind tunnel. There's just no way. So we'll get them up on a four-foot platform and make them dive headfirst in the pool to kind of, you know, replicate what goes on out of the uh, aircraft. Oh, wow. Are they wearing their gear or? No, okay. no. We, we have them in PTs. <laughs> okay. And they jump out. And, and it's, yeah, you'll get some people that hardly have swam some they're like i've never dove into a pool before so it gets interesting on that day i'm a non-diver so <laughs> I, I feel for them <laughs> and then um that friday of ground week is their first jump so they will get two jumps sometimes a third depending on the amount of instructors we have and a lot of it has to do with weather also we can't jump them if the winds are too high so so it's very fast paced the first week they are in the wind tunnel packing parachutes and jumping from an aircraft? Yes. Wow. The Freefall School is comprised of students and instructors from each branch of the military. You mentioned this before, except for the Coast Guard. Is that correct? True. Um, so how unique is it to have this like multi-branch training center? What are the benefits? Uh, the benefits are is you get, you know, you get different uh, branches of service coming through the school. So it's good to have, you know, your Air Force personnel, Navy personnel, and Marines just to, you know, know the Navy, Air Force lingo. If it was just Army, you know, I still get the ranks of the Navy and Air Force confused myself. So this is going to sound like a silly question. <laughs> Do you train canines for jumping as well? So here we don't have the canines because we don't have a canine unit close by, but we do have a canine mock-up that we can strap to um, mostly an instructor or if we're doing the tandem course or our uh, tactical infiltration course, we will strap a mock-up canine to a to a jumper. Stuffed animal or like what? I want to see this mock-up it's now. Like a, um, <laughs> it's like, I think it's plastic, rubber and plastic that's, you know, weighs and it's pretty much the same as a military working dog. Well, now let's talk about why Yuma is a prime location for training, because again, we've mentioned that your headquarters is all the way in North Carolina. So why Yuma? So when the, fir the school first was created, it was in North Carolina. And these years goes on, they noticed that it was hard to get jumps in due to weather and just the location. There's a lot going around. Um, you know, Fort Liberty now in that area. So air uh, airspace was, you know, restricted. So they went around continental United States and Yuma's where they uh, they picked. I think Yuma has 345 days out of the year is sunny. And uh, it's just, it's a good location to uh, do military freefall operations. Let's talk a little bit about you. You've been in the military for 26 years. Can you tell me some of the places that you've deployed to? Um, so I came in the army 1997. I was just going to join for one uh, one tour, do three years, get out. And then uh, my unit got tasked to go to Kosovo back in 2000. I was like, all right, I'm not going to miss on that. I extended. 
And then September 11th of 2001, I had clearing papers to get out of the military to start clearing. That happened. My unit got tagged with going to Afghanistan in November of 2001. I re-enlisted and uh, never looked back. I think I have seven trips to Afghanistan, one to Iraq, multiple places in Africa, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. So I've been all over the place. Anything else that you would like to add about the Military Free Fall School in general, about the students, about the work that you do for this country? The Military Free Fall School out here in Yuma, each year, fiscal year, we conduct about 48% of the DOD's free fall operations happen out here. So it's a, it's a lot of jumps. These instructors are jumping six times a day. Their mornings are early. You know, summertime, the sun comes up earlier, so they're getting here, you know, 3 a.m., not getting home until, you know, their duty is pretty much 12-hour days, and then they'll go into night jumping. So it's a fast-paced workload out here. But very exciting, too. Yes, yes, it is very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Sergeant Major Kruger, thank you for your time today and also what you do for this country. Thank you. Appreciate it. This has been Outpost Outspoken. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you next time from the forefront of Army transformation.